Why church? Why church? Why do you come to church? Oh, do you come to church? Oh, yeah. Why, why is church important to you? These are questions that I've been asking people when I can pigeonhole them and say, why is church important to you? What do you think about church? Why do you make a point of turning up on a Sunday at a church gathering? Why? 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 And I've had some really interesting answers, um, really good answers, but uh, the, the, the one I want to make reference to, and uh, it's my jumping off point, uh, it was, I popped over to see Violet this week, it was her birthday during the week, and so I popped in to say hi, and, um, uh, and gave her some flowers, say hi, and I asked Violet a question, Why? Why is church important to you? And without blinking, without a hesitation, she said, it's my second family. It's my second family. And I think that was the best answer I had. All the other answers were similar, but it was so clear and so heartfelt. And I thought, wow, that's what church is meant to be, our family. And sometimes, you know the the pattern, there is a pattern um, there, there are sociologists that study this thing and they report that the average church person goes to visit their f- church family once a month. They go to a service once a month. That's the statistics of today, culturally, because of the pressures and uh, the circumstances that families find themselves in, um, the pressures of life, people are tired, they're working hard, they're they're struggling to make ends meet and church is maybe not a priority but they feel obligated so they turn up once a month that's not to put condemnation on people that come once a month it's to say to recognize that there is a pressure to isolate people from the place where we gain strength where we gain encouragement where we gain support and so I want to talk to you about um, why I think church is important from scripture okay so I'm going to jump off in Acts 2. I'm going to jump into Acts 4. I'm going to jump over to 2 Corinthians 8. But I've got a shed load of other scripture that I will reference, I'll talk about, but not unpack in too much detail. But I want to pick up on one word and kind of explore it. But in Acts 2, verses uh, from 41... It says this, those who accepted his message, this was Peter was preaching, were baptized. Oh, and let me just point out here, on the 6th of August, we're doing a baptism service. Um, The people that have already mentioned that they'd like to be baptized want to be baptized in the sea. And so we'll be having a short service in the morning. And then I think the tide is out in the morning So we're going to be gathering, uh, we'll let you know what time and we'll let you know where, but we'll be gathering on a beach somewhere, local, not Flanetli Beach, um, uh, but some other beaches where there's no dead horses. Um, But we'll be gathering on a beach, um, just to let you know there was a a carcass of a horse washed up on the beach. Oh, two, two. Anyway, anyway, they've all gone now. But we're going to be meeting on the beach and baptizing uh, those. So if you've not been baptized... 
and you truly know that you're a follower of Christ, I want to say, why have you not been baptized? Don't wait. Get dunked. Make a public declaration of the inner transformation. That's what it's about. Okay, so let me know. Come and speak to me afterwards. Okay, and, uh, and we can baptize you too. All right, it's, it's always a great time. I've got a story about the first baptism I ever did here. And it was with um, Daniel's wife, Rian. And we went to Oxwich Bay. And I'd never baptized anybody in the sea. And in fact, I don't think I'd baptized anybody. Um, it was, yeah. Anyway, we went to Oxwich Bay. And I don't know whether you know Oxwich Bay. But if the tide is in, you can walk a mile. And it's only about ankle deep. And, uh, and so uh, the tide was going, coming in. And um, the, this person, this elder, or deacon and I, were walking with Rian out into the sea. And uh, we were walking and walking and walking and walking and walking and walking, getting further and further from the beach. And when we turned around, the tide was going in. And so the people on the beach were moving away from us, going back up the beach. And then this deacon dived in and started swimming around. <laughs> and, so, and I'm thinking, what is going on? And so we en- ended up uh, thinking, well, we can baptize Rian here. It's deep enough. And we uh, turned around and the, cr- the people on the beach were like miles away. And so I'm yelling, in the name of the Father, hey, name of the Holy Spirit, bellowing, bellowing. And then we, we baptized her in the water, dunked her in the sea and pulled her up. And she was covered in this seaweed. It was, it was all over. Oh, dear. It was, yeah, pantomime. Fun, fun, fun. But, uh, and so these believers were baptized And there were about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who needed, uh, who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As I've prepared for this, um, the thing that has gripped me and begun to really excite me is that last line that says, daily the... The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's because something was being lived out by these people that had encountered the word of God, the spirit of God, and it had brought transformation to how they chose to live, so much so that people were noticing, and those, not- those people noticing were actually choosing to want to be connected with these people and fellowship with them. And this is the word I want to pick up, because it says um, that they were, there were four things that these people did. They, they gathered around the apostles' teaching. So the gathered group was a place where people learned. It was a learning place. Then the second thing that they did was they had fellowship together. And, and I just want to say, that's a Christian ease word? I don't know about you, but I never say to a mate, hey, do you fancy a bit of fellowship at the rugby? Oh, I never say, hey, do you fancy a bit of fellowship down the pub? Or do you fancy a bit of fellowship 
um, going for a walk on the beach. Don't use that word, or, or do you? Uh, I don't. I don't use that word. It's not a word in my language, but it's a word in the church. And sometimes we use this word, and we don't explain this word. We all think we know what this word means. It means just spending time together. Doing life together, mine, <laughs> quoting you. Um, but I want to kind of just unpack this in a minute. But the other two things that they did was that they, they broke bread together and they worshipped or they prayed. So they, it was a place of learning. It was a place of being together with a focus and Christ was that focus through the breaking of bread. And it was a place where they prayed together, where they worshipped God. Okay, but I want to focus on the fellowship element of the gathering because it's really important. Because the word fellowship is an interesting word. In Greek, it's koinonia. And it has a couple of meanings that are really helpful to understand so that we understand what this is meant to be like. It's not just somewhere where we we turn up, sit and listen, and then go home. Because many churches are that experience. It's a place, koinonia means, it's, uh, it's meant to mean a sharing. A place where there is a sharing that goes on. But it's also a place where there is a unity. And that unity can be expressed as a commitment to others. It's not just that we all believe the same thing. It's me, it means that there is a, a commitment here to hear that I am actually willing to play a part in being part of this community, this community. Cornonia means community, a place where there is a sharing and there is a common purpose. And the common purpose for us would be the kingdom of God. The glory of Jesus manifesting in Llanelli would be a common purpose. So the koinonia... Sharing, there's an interesting word that is used for sharing. So follow the lead, koinonia, the fellowship, sharing, and then out of sharing, the root word for sharing is linked with koinonia, is grace. It takes grace to share. It takes grace to belong because not everybody is nice like you. Or is that just my experience of church? It's a place where there is grace. That's what it's meant to be, a place where it, there is grace. There's another, the, the, the Greek word for grace is charis. And charis has three, three dimensions, elements that make up charis. And they're simply this, gift. If I said to you, the gift of the grace of God, you would say, well, okay, I know what grace is. It's not getting what I deserve. It's not being punished for the things that I've done. So I've been forgiven when I don't deserve to be forgiven. Grace, that's what grace is. It's being given something that we don't deserve. But then this other element of grace, of charis, is an interesting element, and it's power and presence. That we are, 
because of the grace of God, we have the power of God, Holy Spirit, and the presence of God, Holy Spirit, at work in us as well. His wonders to perform. So charis, the grace of God, makes his power available to me. So when I pray, I believe things happen. When I pray, when we pray for Joel and Caitlin and the family, that's not just us saying some words. It's us petitioning God on their behalf for his kingdom to come through their endeavors. And his power and his presence is with them and will be with them in their journey, just as he is with you in your journey. Whether you stay here or you go there, whether you do this or do that, you are gifted by God with forgiveness, but also empowered with his presence to be graceful in your situations and circumstances, and it will look like something. It will look like something. And this is what it looks like. This is the third element of charis. It looks like generosity. It looks like generosity. Generosity is a manifestation. It's an element of the grace of God. You cannot be self-centered when you've experienced the grace of God, the love of God, the good, good father that we've been singing about. You can't be selfish. Well, you can if you work at it. You can if you work at it. But if you choose to make following him your living, you will live generously. You will go to those who don't know whether they're in the South America or in Llanetli's High Street. You will be a person who is generous. Generosity is an outward expression of God's love at work in us. That's what generosity is. So jump with me to Acts 4, 32. And it's, I'm just going to highlight three little verses here. Okay, so come back to Acts 4, verse 32. It says, all the believers, all the believers. Here's an interesting thought for me. All the believers, all these people that suddenly have made a decision to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, all of these people, it's not an insignificant number. It's 3,000. All of them. It says all of this 3,000 crowd were united in heart and mind. And I've written, I've written it out here, and I've written, wow, wow. They were united. They were united in heart and mind. They were united in heart and mind. Something had changed. The grace of God, they suddenly realized they'd been forgiven. That suddenly began to manifest in them. It says then in verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, it says in the ESV. Great grace. Luke is writing this, and he's struggling to articulate what he's seen. Great grace. It's not just, wow, they were suddenly really pleased that God had forgiven them and that their lives were changed. This great grace began to manifest. In verse 34, it says this, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them, all that were in need. Actually, there weren't any needy people. That's what it says. Because God's grace was at work in them powerfully, 
There were no needy people. Wow. Wow. No needy people. I'm going to focus us on prayer in a minute, and I'm going to uh, talk to you about the needy people that we're encountering, or the team that uh, run the uh, Life Hub are encountering. But this grace that was so powerfully at work in them, I've asked a question, what did that look like? What did it manifest like? How did it show up in the community? What did that gathering, that church of people, what did it look like? It looked like something was changing them so that there were no needy people. Now, I want to be careful in how I communicate this because I think I've learned over the years when we've touched on this in... When, not when I've been teaching it, but when I've been listening to teaching, I've heard this. In the early church, the people, they sold everything they owned and gave all the money away. They sold everything they owned. They sold their houses, their possessions, and they didn't own anything, and they gave it all away. And in my head, I'm thinking, they would have been really poor. They would have been really needy if they'd given everything that they'd got away they were putting themselves in the place of need what's that about why did they do that I don't want to go there I don't want to give my car away or my house away or my dog away or my no I'm not going to say wife I'm not going to say no I'm not I didn't didn't think that but listen it, it says we need to understand how it what it really means All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that uh, there were no needy persons among them. Come with me to Corinthians. Let me just show you what it says there. And then I'm going to come back and... And now, brothers, uh, this is Corinthians 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So there's grace, here's generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Here's the power Here's the power. It was beyond their ability to give as they seemed to be giving. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. They exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part but since you excel in everything in faith in speech in knowledge in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you see that you also excel in this grace of giving I'm not commanding you but I want to test the sincerity sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others it says in other, if you look at different translations, it says they gave, they gave up what they could give up 
when they saw a need in somebody else. If they had a resource that they could use to actually meet the need of somebody else, that's what they did. That's what they did. That's what, the, that's what this family began to do. This is what the family began to... It, and you do it in your own family. If your kids are in need, you, you go without. You, you, you meet that need. You do what you can as a parent. That's what a family does. If you've got the ability to help, you help. Okay, so what does this look like? This great grace at work in people. It looks like something. Luke, like I said, is struggling to express, to articulate in words what he's seeing, but he calls it great grace. These people have been empowered to live differently because they had experienced God's forgiving grace. His powerful gift of his love and his presence, it had changed their lives and they had chosen to live differently. And because they lived differently, people saw and the people were added, I want to be part of this community. You take care of each other. You look after each other. You seem to be kind to each other. You seem to have time for each other. You seem to be interested in other people's well-being. I want to be part of that. Why? Oh, it's because of what Jesus has done, because his free gift of grace. He's forgiven me. He died on a cross. He's forgiven me. I'm choosing to live differently because that amazing grace has changed me and is enabling me to be more than I've ever wanted to be because I I used to be quite selfish, but now I'm wanting to be selfless. When people see that you have been affected by the love of God and you're connected to others by the love of God, They'll be interested. They want to know why. It's not rocket science. You become interesting. You become follower. You, they, you become easy to follow because people see how you're choosing to live. So I've got, I've got six things that, from the Bible that tell me why church is important. You see, because if you think of church as a family, church is a place of fellowship a place of belonging, a place of sharing, a place of unity, where there is grace flowing. Why church? Why church? Well, church is a family that has been brought close to God at great price. I realize that he has brought me close to him at great price. And so do you. That's why you're here. You begin to hang out with the people who understand that it's his extraordinary grace that saved you and you meet people that have experienced that extraordinary grace whether they're in this country or another country suddenly there is a unity that language can't separate there is a unity because we have been brought together at a great price hebrews 9:14 says the price was the cross the price was jesus going to the cross where where Love and acceptance and power manifested for your benefit and for mine and for the benefit and transformation of community. Secondly, Jesus died to form the church. He died, John 1, 12. All who believe in Jesus, God gave the power to come into his family. The church is God's plan. The church has a great heritage 
Do you know the heritage that we live in today that is the church's heritage? Not just Christ, but the church's heritage down through the generations. It's extraordinary. If you Google what has Christianity brought to the world, man alive, it'd take you a month of Sundays to read through what the church has done for this world of ours. I, I, I wrote a little list. Because, the, because of Christians, the church, uh, we have had the church, let me call it us, us, our heritage, this family that we're part of. This family has a heritage. We're the source of social services. I remember Colin doing years ago a talk to the men about the importance of um, social care and the national health and how it began way before Nairon Bevan. And it started with the church and the early monks in the uh, 6th century where they just would care for people. It was a brilliant talk and I remember it because it made an impression on me. Wow, I didn't know. I didn't know that the church has been that influential we're the, we're the, in our heritage are schools, schools, universities, medical care, uh, arts, culture, philosophy. The Christian church has influenced all these areas of society. It's been influential in politics and in law. It's because of the church that we have the, the clear understanding of what our vices and what our virtues, what is right and what is wrong. It's because of the church. It's even personal hygiene, even personal hygiene has been um, modeled by the church. I, I remember reading about um, uh, the early, in the early, uh, early days when there were hospitals and they were caring for people, the doctors would visit the morgue as their first port of call on their, uh, on their day of duty. They would go to the morgue and examine the dead bodies, and then they would go to see the patients. And um, many, many patients died, um, and they couldn't understand. And then there was a Christian doctor who read in the Bible that if you touch a dead person, you're unclean, and you need to actually be clean. And he suggested that, that these doctors wash their hands after they touched a dead body, before they touched a living body that was poorly, and he was drummed out of being a doctor. But within a few short years, they realized that these doctors were touching the dead and contaminating the already sick and causing them to pass away. And so they instituted cleanliness and hygiene into the principles of caring for people, that you wash your hands. It's the church. It's incredible. Personal hygiene. Holidays. Weekends. Uh, they even, and this is something that I, I just wanted to dive into, but I'm resisting this morning because of time. Um, maybe it's another thought for another day. But they brought honor to women, the church. Women were marginalized, uh, seen as chattels, seen as somebody not worth, uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't own property. I even read this morning that in one uh, particular area of the world, that if the husband died... The wife was burned to death on the funeral pyre of the husband. You say, what? But it stopped because of Christian influence sweeping through that land where that was common. It became outlawed because of Christianity influencing the culture of the day. The church, 
the church. We are influential. We are the most influential body of people on the planet, the followers of Christ. Literature, music. I, I, I'm not a great classic music fan, but, but listen to this. Vivaldi, Bach, Handel, Mozart, Hayden, Beethoven, Mandel, Mendelssohn, Litz, Liszt, and Verdi were all born-again, spirit-filled believers, followers of Christ. They are some of the most influential classical music scholars, uh, um, uh, writers of music. It's extraordinary. It's the church. It's our heritage. This is who we are. We are influence of nations. (laughs) Literature, music, uh, philanthropy, ethics, business, science, technology. From 1901 to 2000, of all the Nobel prizes that have been awarded, 65.4% are to born-again, spirit-filled followers of Christ. 65% of, of Nobel Prizes acknowledging great feats of whatever and they're followers of Christ. We are the most influential body on the planet if we, if we are part and parcel, and we fellowship together, we can move mountains with our shoulders together, worshipping the king. We are incomplete without other Christians, 1 Corinthians 12. I'm telling you, the body is missing an arm or a leg when you're not, when you're not playing your part. And I'm not saying here every Sunday, Play your part. It doesn't mean that there's no rules or regulations about how often you attend. What matters is that you show up in wherever you are, playing your part, being salt and light. That's what matters. The church is incomplete without, other, without you playing your part. Um, it's the only... Sorry, it's in the together that we experience the fullness of God. It's in the together. When other people are playing their part and you're in amongst them, the Spirit of God can move in ways that he can't move with you when you're just you on your own. You know, when people uh, prayed over Joel and Caitlin and the children, when people shared prophetic encouragement, that doesn't happen if they're just praying on their own. It happens because we're there playing our part. And you need to be in the together. And there's Ephesians three seventeen to 19 that points to that. And Matthew eighteen twenty also points to that. And the church also serves as, a, as a, a place where our faith is corrected. I, I've, I don't know about you, but I've met people who tell me they're followers of Christ. And I go, really? Really? And you do that? Or you say that, or you act like that, and you, I want to challenge you. And some of those people have been church leaders that I've met in the past. Past. Because it matters, it matters that we are all sharpened by each other. I've said many times, if you think I'm preaching something that you disagree with, come and talk to me. And if I can't 
show you clearly why I've said what I've said. Challenge me at different levels. You can go to Martin, you can go to the elders and say, listen, what Bill was saying, I don't agree with it. It's really wrong. Or you can go even past them. If they go, no, we're with Bill, you can say, whoa, hang on a second, and we'll speak to the regional leader. You can go all the way to head office and speak to the national leader about Bill. Because we all have to be accountable and we all have to be teachable. We, and it's the church that brings the corrective to our faith. My faith has changed in my journey of faith because of people who have encouraged me with what they've learned and what they're modeling. I'm challenged all the time. So I'm going to wrap this up with seven reasons why church. Uh, and I know that I've bombarded you with a load of stuff, but I'm, I'm going to say the same thing. Here's seven reasons why church. It's God's idea, and it's, and it's his plan for times like these. It's his plan. He calls us the bride of Christ, the family of God, the body of Christ, and it's God's, uh, God is building this. Not this. I'm pointing at the building, but he's building this. This, us. He's building us, and he's adding to us because he's building his church. Secondly, his word instructs us to be involved in the church. Hebrews 10, 25 says, not forsaking gathering. In the New Testament, there are 30 specific churches mentioned and six regions of churches mentioned. Churches are important. Gatherings are important. And we are called to be involved in the gatherings. So don't not bother. Be bothered. It's the place where we learn and grow in the word. And there's two Tim, uh, 1 Timothy 4.6 and 1 Tim 4.2. Uh, highlight that. And, um, the fourth one is, it's the place where believers practice their gifts. It's where you learn to actually play a part. And maybe your gift is prophesying or serving or whatever your gift is. It's the place where you can actually practice your gift and be encouraged in your gift. Because this is not a preaching theater. It's, it's, a, it's a practice. I, I love the fact that doctors have a practice. And I think, oh my gosh, that's a bad word for what doctors do. I don't want them practicing on me. I want them to be fully trained before they have a go at dealing with me. Don't practice on me. But this is a practice, this is a practice center where we can practice our gifts. We can be challenged in our gifts, encouraged in our gifts. It's also a place of connection. Being a Christian is not a solo effort. Oh, yeah, it's you and God, absolutely. But listen, if you try and do it on your own, you will, you will fail. Because you're not meant to be a follower of Christ on your own. It's your personal walk, absolutely. And only you can take your steps. But you're not meant to be alone. He says, I put the lonely in families. Why? Because they're not meant to be alone. They're meant to be in a family. Nearly 60 one another's in the New Testament. Did you know? One another. Love one another. Comfort one another. Forgive one another. Pray for one another. Fellowship with one another. We are meant to be together, and I'm resisting doing the accent from the old advert years ago, but we're meant to be together. (laughs) Move on quickly. No, no, don't. (laughs) Don't, 
Last but one. It's a base for mission. It can't be more better illustrated by Joel and Caitlin. It's a place for mission. But it's not just going to foreign countries. It's going to your next-door neighbor. Living life on mission is not overseas. It is for some. But for he, I haven't come over the sea. I came over, an est, over a, uh, a bridge and an estuary, but I'm on mission. I'm from England, and I live here on mission. I am called by God to mission in this community. It's a base for mission. I couldn't do it. Ellen and I couldn't do it on our own. We need church. You need church, but it's a base for mission. And the last one, it's the only, this is the only place you can be a disciple who makes disciples. The teaching and accountability found in the church helps us grow true and make true disciples. John, 1, uh, John 15, 8, Jesus says, my true disciples. I love the fact. It's highlighted in my Bible, my paper Bible, it's highlighted, and I've got notes all around it, true disciples. He says, my true disciples bear much fruit. Where are the true disciples? They're in the gathering. And then they're on mission. And they're caring and loving and serving and doing all that God has called them to do. Because they understand that this fellowship actually is for these people. These people. This fellowship is for them to be added to the kingdom. Daily, those being saved. Now, I, I finished what I wanted to say. I know I've bombarded you with stuff. But fellowship is really, really important. But if we get caught up in just using Christian jargon... And saying, oh, we had great fellowship, meaning you had a nice cup of tea with somebody. Please, change your language. Or maybe don't change your language, just change your understanding. And if you want to use that language, that's fine. But understand that church is Jesus' idea. He came that we might understand him and get to understand us. For his glory. And out of that base, we pray.